If you'll open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 41. So we're going to be looking at um, chapter 41, verses sort of 33 down through 56, or 57 that is. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off um, reading just the beginning section of that, and then that'll kind of jump us into the passage and then we will um, we'll read more as we continue on through it. So um, starting in chapter Genesis chapter 41, verse 33, it says, And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country, so to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt, so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials, so Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man? one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for your word. Um, God, we thank you for this story that we have continued to work through, um, the story of the patriarch Joseph and and the way that you providentially worked in his life, God, to, to establish, uh, to save the world in this time of famine, God, to establish your people, the nation of Israel um, in, in history, God, and as a, uh, type and a, a prefiguring, um, as a foreshadowing of the coming of your son, Jesus Christ and his ministry to the world, his life of humiliation, God, his life of exaltation that led to our salvation. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us this source that we can go to this objective, um, truth, that that we um, yeah, that we measure own lives by, that we measure um, reality by, that we measure um, the truth of of the things of the world, um, God, that we align our hearts um, with who you are and what you have said. God, we thank you for the blessing of your word. Father, as we as we do uh, each week, God, we we pray for the ministry of your word in our community. God, we, we give you thanks for the sister churches of, of Blount County who faithfully, um, preached and taught the word this Lord's day. God, we ask for your special blessing in those places. We ask that your Holy Spirit would go, um, ahead of the preaching of your word. God, that, that you would prepare the soil as, as the word is, is, um, cast generously, um, God, that as that word um, goes into the tilled ground of, of people's hearts, God, that you would cause it to, to germinate, that you would cause it to grow, that you would cause it to become established, and that you would cause it to be 
God, that it would produce fruit in, in the lives of those people, uh, 40, 60, a hundred times what was sown. God, we know that this is the ministry of your Holy Spirit. God, that you are convicting the world of its sin, of righteousness, of judgment. God, that you are leading your people in truth. And Father, we ask that you would do this by your spirit in accordance with your word. God, as we look now, that you would shine a light on this text, shine a light in our own hearts. God, use it to do the work that you see fit uh, for each of us. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to jump in. So if you'll remember where we're at in the story, um, Joseph has been gone through through first the betrayal, um, being sold into slavery by his brothers, ending up in Potiphar's house where he is falsely accused. Um, he is sent to prison where he, after being in prison for a number of years, he meets uh, Pharaoh's uh, cupbearer and baker who he interprets their dream accurately and yet is forgotten again. He sits in prison for several more years until the Pharaoh has this strange dream, um, at which point the cupbearer remembers there was a guy that I met in prison that could, that could accurately interpret dreams. They call for Joseph. He is brought out of prison. He interprets the dreams for, for Pharaoh, and that's where we find ourselves in the text. And Pharaoh says, um, who would be better to organize this this uh, project. Who would be better to see to the collection and the saving of food over the next seven years of, of plenty to prepare for the seven years of famine? Who would be better for that than this man who obviously God is working in, Joseph? And so that's where we find ourselves in the story. I want to start by saying a couple of things um, and talking about a, a concept that we throw out there a lot, or I throw out there a lot, mainly because it came from J.R.R. Tolkien, and, and I want to put a little bit of nerdery in, in a sermon whenever I can, but this idea of eucatastrophe, a eucatastrophe. And so you've heard me talk about that before. Most of you or many of you probably have, and you say, Ash, I know what a catastrophe is, but what is a eucatastrophe? Well, we'll talk about it in just a second. So, so think a little more broadly first, the idea of hope. So hope is a concept that is particularly Christian. In a lot of ways, it gets co-opted, obviously, by other philosophies and other religions. But there is a unique element that Christianity brings to the concept of hope. And that is this. The fact that behind the events of life in human history, there's a loving God of providence. Okay, So we talked about that last week. So take Joseph's story, for example. We have talked about his downward descent and his humiliation. And then last week, we finally talked about the shift that has happened. He is pulled from the dungeon and brought to Pharaoh. But what I would suggest to you is that if you do not believe in a loving, personal God, one who knows you and is concerned for you, then there is no hope in the midst of suffering, or at least there's no expectation that things will necessarily get better. You might still think that maybe there is a chance that something could randomly drop into your lap, 
But even then, that's very different from what the concept of, certainly the Christian concept of hope is. And you may have heard somebody explain that previously in, in, in church or somewhere else. Um, the, the idea of the difference of the way the world talks about hope and the way the church talks about hope. So when we look at the word hope, the way the world talks about it, what they mean by hope is expressing a desire that things will work out a certain way, right? That's what it means to hope, that you want things to work out a certain way. But the Christian concept expresses a confidence that things will work out not just the way I want, but a confidence that they will work out the way God has promised that they will. And so we're not told why Joseph is able to stay faithful to God through all his trials, right? We, we're not, we're not given the insight into his life in that way, but I think it must be connected to the promise that was made to him at the beginning of the story. So Joseph knows that one day his brothers and father will bow down to him in some way. That's the, remember that very first dream that he had. He knows and believes that that will take place. And so that creates hope, hope that things will work out in that exact way. And you know what? That seems like it would hard, it would be a hard situation to work out in a jail, right? Um, if there is going to be a day when his brother and father come and bow down to him, prison doesn't seem like the context for that. And so I think Joseph says, I trust God. I know that he has a plan working. I can't see that plan right now, and it doesn't make any sense why I'm going through all these difficulties, but I trust in God's promise, and so it is my calling to be patient, to wait until God does exactly what he said he was going to do. So again, we've mentioned several times this pattern that we see of the humiliation that leads to exaltation resulting in salvation. All right, we've seen that pattern. Um. That is your hope, and that is my hope. That is the Christian hope, that if we are in Christ, that our trials are not the end of the story, that we will not be stuck in those trials forever, that God will not only see us through, but in fact that we will be exalted eventually with Christ. And so that exaltation, that concept is actually what the theme of our passage is today. A temporal exaltation for Joseph, right? Something that happens in his own life that prefigures an ultimate exaltation for Christ. And that even promises an eventual exaltation for those who are found in Christ. Okay, so that's going to kind of be the, 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 the flow of the sermon. We're going to talk about Joseph's exaltation and then how it prefigures Christ's exaltation and how it promises our exaltation. So look down at, at what happens in the story. Pharaoh comes and says, you know what? Who could we get better to see this project through than Joseph? He's obviously the guy for it, that uh, a person like this who is God is working in in such a great way. And then Joseph is exalted in verses 41 through 45. And look what it says. So think about it as we go through the passage, how Joseph is exalted, lifted up, brought to the high station that he is in. It says, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. 
He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And people shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. And Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphnath Paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. All right. Now, just think about how the, the, the various multifaceted exaltation of Joseph. Um, first off, Joseph is given power in verse 41. It says, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Joseph has power over everyone. In fact, previously he had said, the only person you won't have power over is me as Pharaoh. I'm the only person who will be above you. Power, and we've talked about this before, power and authority are different, right? They're not exactly the same thing, but Joseph is given power and authority. What does it say? It says Pharaoh took the signet ring off his hand and gave it to Joseph. Now, you may know this, or, or maybe you don't, but but in the ancient world, that was sort of like your signature. And so you would take that signet ring, it would have a special little symbol on it or something like that, and you would use it, you would press it into wax, as a, as a seal or, or you would use it as a mark that you pressed into a document, um, or put ink on and then pressed it into a document. That was basically your signature. It was your stamp of approval. And Pharaoh says, I take my signet ring off and I put it on your hand, Joseph. That means when you make a decree and you put your fist to that paper or that parchment or that whatever, it is as if I am doing it. That's authority. He gives him Comfort, opulence even, says he dresses him in robes of fine linen and puts a chain around his neck, a gold chain around his neck. He is given respect with the people. And so it says, as he rode this chariot as Pharaoh's second in command, as he rode through the town, there would be people going before them saying, make way, right? Get out of the way for this person of, of importance. Stand aside so that this person who is more important than you can go through and make his way through. He's given a bride. In this case, a woman uh, born of, of not royalty, but priesthood. To be his wife. Here's an interesting reality. Um, being married and having the joys of marriage, of, of intimacy, of, of love, of children, that is not something that is promised to us. And for most of human history has not been something that just everybody had access to. Right? Lots and lots of people throughout the history of the world have not been in a position to be married and to have a family and things like that. And so that is a major exaltation to be put into a situation where you can have a wife and a family um, and, and the blessings that come from that. And here's an interesting thing too, and it should be a part of all exaltation, although this is a uniquely Christian, Judeo-Christian impulse, I think. He's also given a service. You notice that? He is exalted but it is not so that he can sit and luxuriate and be waited on. 
He is exalted to a position so that he can serve the people for their good. So verse 46 says, Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. Right. So Joseph goes around and for these next seven years begins to set these things in place that will eventually lead to the salvation of his people. I was, I was sharing in, in, um, book study earlier, I'm reading a little book on King Alfred, Alfred the Great. Okay. Who was the first king of England. This is in the Anglo-Saxon era. This is in the 800s. But there was an interesting thing that they pointed out is that as King Alfred begins to unify the, 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 the island of England against the Viking invaders who are coming in and, and raping and pillaging and, and destroying the, 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 the culture and the community there that's in England, um, he begins to unite the people and raise up an army to defend against the Vikings. But here's a key thing is Alfred is king goes into battle with his men. He stands on the shield wall with spear in hand, putting himself in just as much danger as everybody else has to do. And this is what's interesting, and it was something I came across in this book, is that in the Anglo-Saxon tradition, right, that that Germanic group of people who immigrated to, to England in the 600s, there was a culture that said this, we will anoint somebody as king. We will have a king and we will give him taxes and we will give him honor and we will take from our own things and give to him because he is king. But we expect him to serve the people and sacrifice for the people and perhaps even to give his own life in defense of the people. Now, the interesting thing is at this point in, in, in history, the Anglo-Saxons were already Christians at this point. They had, they had, um, just a couple of weeks from now, we're going to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. The, the, the missionaries from, from Ireland had gone to Scotland and then the missionaries from Scotland had gone down the coast to England and they have shared the gospel with the Anglo-Saxons. And the Anglo-Saxons at this point, formerly a pagan tribe, have now embraced the Christian faith. King Alfred is a Christian king, but they recognize something there, right? They recognize that leadership, that exaltation to leadership should be about serving and sacrificing for the people. And so we see Joseph exalted in all these different ways. He has gone from the pit and the prison to the right hand of the most powerful man probably in the entire world. That is a you catastrophe. Okay? That's what a you catastrophe is. You know what a catastrophe is. It is the sudden turn of events in a bad to a bad way, right? So we know what, if, if, if an earthquake happens and buildings collapse and the earth opens up and people die, we say, oh, what a catastrophe. We would have never seen that coming, but it happened and everything was worse because of it. Tolkien says there's this neat thing that in the Christian conscience, the consciousness, there's a thing that we could call the catastrophe, meaning all of a sudden for no reason out of nowhere, something happens to make everything better. Like everything is all of a sudden blessed and and comes together. And that's a Christian concept tied into that thing that we call hope. Because why? Why can a you catastrophe exist? Because we believe in there's a good God behind the actions of the world, behind the events that are taking place. And then if there's a good, wise, and gracious God, then every once in a while he may do something where he says, everything's going bad. But I'm going to cause something to happen that fixes it all. 
We know what the greatest catastrophe in the history of the world is, and that is the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? The thing that happened that seemed like the worst possible event ends up completely shifting on Sunday morning when Christ is raised from the dead. And something that we could have never seen coming and never expected suddenly happens to make everything good. So we have done this each week, and that's what we're going to kind of lead into now, is we've pointed to how Joseph's life is a type, is a prefiguring, is a foreshadowing of of Christ's life. And that is true of his exaltation as well. Joseph is exalted, and Jesus is exalted in an even greater context. So what do we read as we come to the New Testament? That Jesus certainly suffers that humiliation, similar to Joseph. He suffers the in, the humiliation that, that comes just by taking on flesh. When before he was at the right hand of the Father, before he was in eternity with God, and yet he takes on flesh and comes to earth. He is rejected here. He is crucified here. Those are his humiliation. But in his resurrection and ascension, Christ is exalted to his rightful place. And he is given power. And he is given authority. And he is given respect. And he is actually given a bride. And he rules not just to be served, but he rules as a servant to his people. Sort of weird thing to say, and and there's a little bit of it where I think we're uncomfortable, but do you realize that Jesus Christ, that God the Father, that the Holy Spirit, that they serve you every single day, right? They are ministering to you. And you might say, just as Peter did, Lord, don't wash my feet, right? I should be washing your feet. And what does Jesus say? He says, if I don't wash your feet, you can have no part in me. That's what... Christ is exalted to do. He is exalted to love, to care, and to serve for his people. And we, in turn, love our God and serve him. The Bible has all kinds of things to say about Christ's exaltation. And they almost, you can see the connections with Joseph's story. That passage that we come back to over and over again, Philippians chapter 2. And being found in human form, verse 8, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And then what does it say in verse 9? Therefore, because of his humiliation and crucifixion, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ephesians 1 says, far above all authority and rule and power and dominion, above every name that has been named, not only in this age, but in the one to come, Jesus Christ has been exalted. We go to Revelation chapter 1, and John steps into the, he sees this vision, right? He is he is taken up into heaven, and he sees this image of Christ enthroned, of sitting there in glory. And he describes this scene of basically like Jesus just shining, right? Like he's like, his hair was like this, and his eyes were glowing, and his feet were like burnished bronze, and, and light was coming out of his, I mean, like, it, it is this glory, that is covering Christ as he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay? That pattern 
of his humiliation has led to, right? That verse Philippians 2, therefore Christ has been exalted. And so that pattern of humiliation leading to exaltation holds in Christ. But it also adds something new. It adds another element to that that we don't see in Joseph's story. And that's this. It's not just that Jesus is exalted after his humiliation. And it's not even just that Jesus is exalted because of his humiliation. But we realize that Jesus is exalted in his humiliation. Part of what makes Jesus exalted is his suffering. The fact that the Bible even uses this language, the idea that Jesus was lifted up on the cross, that Jesus is exalted as he goes to the cross, not just after, right? And that's the, that's the weird thing of the cross is the cross becomes the ultimate picture of Christ's humiliation. But it is at the same time the ultimate picture of his sacrificial exaltation. John talks about the idea looking back to Moses and the bronze serpent in in the Old Testament where he says, as for me, Jesus says, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He's talking about being lifted up on the cross. That idea, it's all into our culture because we are a Christian-infused culture, even if we don't remember it, okay? So obviously, you're all aware this week of, or or two weeks ago, of Officer McCowan's death, right? Um, Of his being killed in the line of duty. So here's the deal. We, We see an exaltation in his sacrifice, right? We don't just talk about an exaltation after, right? The Part of the exaltation is in his sacrifice. Think about how in, in the Christian understanding of the world, how big martyrdom plays into our understanding of things. The idea that you would sacrifice and die for the faith, that is the exaltation, right? That is why uh, people are lifted up. That's why uh, we teach our kids the names of martyrs um, and the history of the church. We don't just teach them to say, oh, are these people that were served Jesus and then now they're in heaven and exalted. We say, no, 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 it's in their sacrifice that they are also exalted. That's the difference, part of the difference. Obviously, it's not just this, but it's part of the difference that the cross makes. The cross basically shifts our whole understanding of, of service, sacrifice, of exaltation, and humiliation. So Christ is exalted not only in his position now, but he is exalted in his suffering. And that changes the whole nature of all these things. And that brings us at the end to what does that mean for us in our daily lives? What does that exaltation point to in our own suffering and difficulty? Well, here's something I want to go in just a little bit different direction because we have talked over and over again about the reality of humiliation over the last few weeks, right? The reality that sometimes in God's sovereign plan, we go through times of difficulty and trial. And yes, sometimes that's about our stupid decisions and their consequences for our sinful actions, but sometimes it's not. Doesn't seem to be the case for Joseph. Joseph is not in prison and slavery because of his sin. It's just the path that God has him on. 
And we've talked about how we have to accept that. We have to be patient in that. We have to bear up under that. We know these things are true and biblical. And we know that they are the way things play out in our lives, especially in the short term. But here's something that I want to emphasize, just in case you've gotten a little down. Okay? Just in case in the process of talking about, hey, you know what? Maybe humiliation is just your lot in life, right? Maybe the fact that you're going through these hard things is just the way it is, and you're just going to have to deal with that. If you have felt like I was saying that, I want to encourage you in a different direction today. It's not that those things aren't true, but I want to encourage you in something else. Because we have emphasized the humiliation, but I also want to emphasize the fact that that humiliation leads to our exaltation if we are in Christ. We go through hard times for reasons that we probably don't understand in the midst of them anyway, right? Sometimes we can look backwards with hindsight. We can see how God worked in things, but but not always. Sometimes we still look back and we go, man, I don't know why God allowed me to go through these difficult things. But here's what we do know. We know that we have a kind father who knows how to give good gifts to his children. He provides for our every need. And so I say this because in the process of studying these things, if our hearts get going in the wrong direction, we end up basically being stoics, right? We look at the world and you may say, I don't really know what that word means, Ash. Like, what is the, what do you mean by stoics? We end up getting in a situation where we say, you know what? Uh, the world's just a hard place and then you die. And that's just the way things are, right? And so the only thing that we have to do in those situations is we just need to be stalwart. We need to bear up under it. We need to suck it up, buttercup, because the world is not a nice place, and sometimes you're just going to have a hard time, okay? That's stoicism. Um, it is very closely related philosophically to Buddhism, and Christians are neither of those things, okay? Just in case you didn't know Christians weren't Buddhists, that's your take home, okay? Um, we're not Buddhists. We're not even Stoics. Because why? Because we have hope. We bear up under hardship, not because we have that attitude of, I'll just weather through this thing. We bear up under hardship because we know our Heavenly Father is in control. He is wise. But more to the point, from the passage this week, because he has promised exaltation in the future for every single one of us who are found in Christ. If you are in Christ, your destiny is exaltation. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We have something incredible coming. And so you have every reason to hope for whatever it is you're hoping for. For that future relationship, for that better job, that salvation of the loved one, for that provision for your life. Now, again, I can't promise you any of those things. And it may be in God's will that the exaltation that you receive will not be seen until you step into the next life. 
right? And man, if that sounds like a bummer, if you're sort of like, man, it could be the case that I would have to just bear and, and, and go through these things on earth and never see them resolved in this lifetime, man. But here's the thing, man, just think about that first step into eternity, right? Think of going from this dump to being exalted at the standing next to Christ. Like, man, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't look back. You wouldn't even think about it. It would never cross your mind to go, gosh, it sure was hard back then. You would never think of it again. So maybe we get a preview of that in this life. Maybe good things happen in this life. And again, because our Father is good, we have every expectation that that could happen. God is not stingy with his grace. He's not stingy with his blessing. We see that in Joseph's story. We see that in Job's story, right? In both of these stories, that exaltation takes place in this lifetime. Job goes through a lot of really hard stuff, but at the end of the story, things are given back to him. Blessing comes back into his life, good and abundance and family and all these things. Because we have a God who Ephesians 3 tells us is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. Here's a cool thing, and we'll end on this, is I think that actually happens in this story in a certain sense, is that the blessing that Joseph is hoping for is so much bigger, actually, than even what he has, because he gets exalted in a lot of cool ways, right? It would be cool to be um, a prisoner in a in, in a jail cell, and then like the next day be the opulent second-in-command of the greatest nation in the world. That would be really cool, okay? And we see all these things that he is blessed with, right? And we're told that he is blessed with his wife. He's given his wife, um, who is the daughter of, of Potiphera. And then it says this. It says, Joseph has two sons with that woman. And he names them Ephraim, which Ephraim means basically... God has given me blessing in the place of my suffering. So in the midst of the land of my suffering, God has actually blessed me there. Okay? And we go, cool. But this is the other thing. He has another child named Manasseh. And here's what Manasseh's name means. It's verse 51. It says, Manasseh means it is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. All right. So, so what Joseph says is he says, I bless God and I thank him. You know why? Because he's made me forget all of the hardship that I've gone through. He's made me forget the wickedness of my brothers. He's made me forget the life that I left behind and all the hardship that came along with it and the betrayal and all the goofiness. And he's put me in a place now where I'm blessed and I have a family and I can live my life. Um, and I've been able to forget about all the hardship that came before. That's what some of us would love, right? Some of us look back at our past and we are still hung up on all the things that have hurt us throughout our lives, right? Whether those are a long series of events or it's one event or, or whatever, we look back at those things and we say, um, man, I just wish I could get to a point where I didn't remember them anymore. 
Like I could forget it and move on. But you know what's cool in this story? Is that's not actually what Joseph gets. Joseph doesn't get to forget his family and move on to from them. You know what God's got in store? God's got in store something far more incredible. The fact that he is going to be reconciled to his family. That the people who have hurt him are going to repent and seek his forgiveness. That the father who thought he was dead. I get, sorry, I'm going to get worked up. I got worked up studying this week. That the father who thought he was dead and thought, I'm never going to see my kid again. The, the son that it was so beloved, he's, he's dead and he's gone. God is so gracious that he says, no, you're going to see your father again. And your father is going to get to be with you. You're not going to forget about him. That would be its own kind of blessing. I'm going to do something so much better. I'm going to make all this right. That's what exaltation looks like. That's what a eucatastrophe looks like. The fact that God's good plans for us are so much bigger than the plans that we have even for ourselves. And that in the midst of all of our difficulty, we just wish we could move past things. And yet God has in plan no recompense, reconciliation, and salvation. So I would encourage you and say, if you were going through the midst of struggle, know that you have a God who loves you and who is working in your life. And he will meet you at that point of suffering. He will see you through it. And we can pray and hope that there is good and blessing and exaltation in this life. And if not, then we are promised that those things will come to us in the next life. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Asking God to help us in the midst of these things. Asking us, asking him to walk us through the hard times. And to give us hope. Because we can trust in him and his promises are sure. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, what graciousness you have shown your people now that we have, God, that we deserved nothing, that we should have expected nothing, that in fact what we deserved was death, um, that what we deserve is judgment. And yet you in your goodness and grace give us not only provision, not only forgiveness, but you exalt us, Lord. God, you send your son into the world as a exemplar and a pattern and as a substitute for the life that we should have lived. And as we are united to him, we experience the same things he experiences. God, we can expect, your word says, to go through suffering. That we can expect to suffer along with Christ and for Christ. 
And yet we are also promised exaltation. God, that you will raise us up, that you will seat us with Christ. God, that we will live in hope and in peace and in the light of your grace for eternity. So God, shore up our hearts on these things. When we are in despair, when we fear that things will not change and circumstances will not change, God, give us hope. Show us that you have an incredible future ahead for us. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Teach me some melodious sonnet Sung by many kingdoms of the world Raise up, raise up, Amen. Good to see you tonight. Um, hope you have a great week. Um, we'll continue on in, in the story of Joseph.
um, as we head towards um, Easter. I think we, we weren't sure at first, but I think what we're going to do is we're going to finish up uh, Easter Sunday with our Joseph series and, and, uh, we will, we will talk about sort of the ultimate, um, typology, um, when we get to that point of, of the resurrected Christ, um, and how it connects to Joseph's story. So, um, hope you continue to be with us over the next couple of weeks. Um, again, hope you have a great week. Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.
I mean, she would just put us in that garden and take us to where we could just be in with it in relationship with it. Okay, right? It doesn't seem like a big deal. Okay, what I'm suggesting is, uh, you don't buy that argument. Somebody just comes along and goes, No, I think I would rather just been naked rather than have a blood or east of God. And I go, but what I think is that uh, the reason God let these things happen is because we know not yet. Because we are separated from him in his right to save us. I said, Oh, son, why? And who is your paper? Who has that going? So we need to come back. So here's like a film on the street. You have the friendship and something. The friendship and all of the things he had with you know you love that person, but it's never been tested. Like you can all put a really hard thing. You're still friends. Then you will know that friendship is even greater quality. It's been tested. Very well. Basic sense. That's essentially what I'm saying. God has demonstrated his love for us, not in us never messing up and always being all right. It's been in fact that we screwed up. Hey, uh, ruined his creation. And he still chose grace. And not just any grace, but at the cost of himself. To bring us back to himself. Again, you can look at that and go, yeah, I just would have rather had perfection, whatever. And, and if you say that, and I go, well, all I can say is I think God would do that. That's not the way he thought was Because being saved by Christ is better than having never needed to be saved. I I don't feel bad to Christ. I'm 
Yeah. 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 Yeah.